This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We try to restore the sense of mystery to the human psyche. In other words, what we're really trying to get our readers to consider is that there are deep, deep parts of you that you're not conscious of that may seem like problems, but they're actually resources that you've never tapped into before. Once you can forge a relationship with it, it becomes this incredible resource that allows you to do things that you never thought you could do before. And what the tools are for is to bring up that force that you've never had access to. I think a lot of the visualizations you recommend are very powerful. They're around what I think is a very simple idea, which is distancing yourself from these pains and these struggles from who you really are. Exactly. You start off the book talking about how we can best bring to life the living force that's inside of us. I love it because it makes me think of the force in Star Wars and it makes me think of, oh, if I apply these tools, there's infinite power at my disposal. And what would you say are the techniques that you like the best that really does let you feel the force? Very happy to have with me today on the podcast, Barry Michaels. We're talking about your book, Coming Alive, Four Tools to Defeat Your Inner Enemy, Ignite Creative Expression, and Unleash Your Soul's Potential, which is an excellent book. I've already applied several of, you You discussed these four tools. I've already applied all of them, and it's great. Uh, but I first read you in your first book, uh, or your earlier book, The Tools, Five Tools to Help You Find Courage, Creativity, and Willpower, and Inspire You to Live Life in Forward Motion, which came out in 2012. I And I was telling you earlier, I used that book very, very specifically. I had to give, I, I've always been a public speaker for like the past 20 years, but I had to give this one talk that terrified me and for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons, and your tool in the tools called uh, uh, the shadow. I think there was another name for it. but It's called it, inner authority. Inner authority, but what you talk about the how you split apart your shadow self, the self that has all these fears, and, and, then, you, and then you show very much uh, compassion and love towards the shadow, and then it's no longer your enemy, it's kind of your partner when you're, if you have to give a talk, for instance, or, or go into a scary situation. And I find that these... You know, people could laugh at these visualization techniques, but I find that uh, they're very useful. They give kind of this inner relaxation so for that are very targeted for specific situations. Yeah, I think that people can laugh at it sometimes because they they're only looking at it as a visualization. And really, we try to restore the sense of mystery to the human psyche. In other words, what we're really trying to get our readers to consider is that there are deep, deep parts of you that you're not conscious of. That's why they call it the unconscious that may seem like problems, but they're actually resources that you've never tapped into before. And this is what I love about the idea of the shadow is it's something you feel generally, you feel a little ashamed or guilty about your shadow. But once you can forge a relationship with it, it becomes this incredible resource that allows you to do things that you never thought you could do before. Well, I think there's probably a couple of reasons, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, one is, obviously, self-awareness is very important. Like, why are we doing the things we're doing? What 
things from our past might trigger anxiety in the present that then makes us make bad decisions for the future. Um, and but I think also we like I might say to myself, "Oh, I'm feeling really scared about giving this talk. I kind of want to run away." But when you when you're forced to kind of kind of congeal all these fears into one place, it really forces you to think, well, what are these fears? Why am I feeling these fears? So, uh, and you talk about this in Coming Alive, this idea of when when things are going wrong, uh, label as much as possible what's happening. And it's this very meditative practice of, okay, uh, I'm feeling anxiety. I probably shouldn't make a decision right now. Um, or a bad, or or I should be careful. I'm not making bad decisions. So even just labeling what your emotional state is at any given point helps you to to live a more functional and effective life. I think absolutely, it's enormously helpful. The moment, I mean, I'm by the way the opposite of you. I'm terrified of public speaking. I I I was only forced into it, frankly, when when the tools became a New York Times bestseller, and we had to go on on the radio, on Charlie Rose, on Doctor Oz, et cetera, et cetera. And labeling was incredibly helpful because the moment I labeled my anxiety, which really anxiety isn't the right word, it was more like, get me out of here, I'd rather die than do this, you know, right. kind of thing. The moment you label it, it doesn't necessarily go away, but it's not you. You are the one who's doing the labeling. So it pushes it away from you just enough for you to have a little bit of distance and a little bit more sanguine attitude it, it just gives you a, a a a little breathing room to say it's okay i am scared there is a part of me that's terrified but i can still proceed you know kind of thing in a way it has it has to do with a deeper concept about about human the human psyche which is we are never just one thing when you're really enraged you're never just that rage. When you can label the rage, there's a part of you that's separate from the rage that's labeling it. When you're terrified, if you can label the terror, then there's a part of you that's not in the terror. Well, it's interesting because I want to uh, get into that very concept of, uh, like when you were just saying that you put up your hand, uh, you extended your arm and put up your hand as if there's a distance between, for instance, these fears or these anxieties and who you really are. And I think a lot of the visualizations are all about, that you recommend in both the tools and coming alive are very powerful, but they're but they kind of um, are around what I think is a is a very um, simple idea, which is distancing yourself from these pains and these struggles uh, from from who you really are. Exactly. And and, and, and then it's so so you know, understanding that it's almost like, I mean, I think the tools are very good because in both the tools and coming alive, because they kind of, um, are going after one, you know, each, each one is going after a different type of problem, but they're still all around this idea that you can also just visualize, Oh, the world's a big place times, you know, the universe is 14 billion years old. This is not that important. I'm going to distance myself from this minor worry about whether my daughter is speaking to me or not or whatever. Exactly, exactly. So you're bringing up another point now, which is that um, what the tools do is they try to help you root yourself in a stream of time. Part of what powerful emotions do is they create the impression that's what that what's happening now is of absolute life and death paramount importance. Whereas 
we know that tomorrow you probably won't feel that way about. It's, it's so true. Like I'll so many times. I mean, this is just a common situation, but so many times, let's say it's Friday afternoon, and a boss or someone who has some power over you say, you know, leaves a message at four fifty nine p.m. Hmm, James, I think we better have a talk. Uh, call me when you can. And of course, then you call 5, 10 p.m. on a Friday, oh, you know, out of the office till Monday. And you're thinking, oh my God, how am I going to survive till Monday? Like, I'm just going to have anxiety nonstop until Monday. That's like a regular occurrence, but there's ways to, to deal with it. Absolutely. Can well, I tell you a personal story? Sure, of course. <laughs> this is sort of ridiculously personal, but my mother was just an extraordinarily difficult woman. You know, she was what in psychiatry they would diagnosed as a borderline personality disorder, which meant that she had wide mood swings, you know, within the space of like days. And so when I went off to college, I was the youngest kid and I was the closest one to her. She really felt abandoned. And she would go through these swings where she would call me. And, you know, back then, I think we had uh, phone machines, not, not voicemail. And she would leave a message on my machine enraged at me for some abandonment. I hadn't called her enough, or, you know, and I was a nice Jewish son. I mean, <laughs> believe me, I called her enough. Um, and so that would be the first message. You'd be enraged. And then the next message would be like a little less enraged. And then the next message, maybe Saturday night, would be, where are you? I'm worried about you. Where are you? Why haven't you called me back? You know, kind of thing. And I never called her back when she was in these states because I knew I would just get more abuse. And then by Sunday evening, she would be crying and saying, I, I need to talk to you. I, I know I've been really bad. I am so mm -hmm. sorry, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And one time I just kept the whole weekend worth of messages and I would replay them to myself to remind myself that that first enraged message, which used to make me terrified and also enraged back, that was going to evolve into something else. Mm. And we were going to have a good relationship after this and it was all going to be okay. So it speaks to that point of you don't need to get trapped in what's happening in the present if you can keep the perspective that the future is going to have many, many more present moments that are a lot more sanguine than this one. You know? Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and again, that speaks to the process of labeling. So exactly. instead of saying, oh my God, she's enraged at me and I'm enraged back. I'm, I'm going to call her and tell her not to do that anymore. You're able to say, okay, that was call number one. I've seen this a thousand times. Exactly. I'll wait till call number four. Exactly. And so, uh, and you're able to kind of put things in perspective. And I think, but the other thing about self-awareness, particularly when it's rooted out of, when your anxieties and are, are being rooted out of previous trauma is that you're not, there's, there are blind spots to trauma. You don't always recognize that you're traumatized and this is why you might be feeling anxiety about something. Yes. And I think part of, these visualization techniques is to say, okay, I'm not going to know why. I'm not going to really make the d direct link of why I'm feeling this anxiety, but here's what I could do right now to solve this problem. Yes. And, and I think that gets to, you know, before we get into the specific tools, which are all uh, amazing and very useful, I kind of want to go through on coming alive. You sort of give a almost um, philosophical history of how you came up with this method of therapy and solving problems. And you start with kind of traditional therapy. I'll call it traditional therapy, but but it, where okay, you, you're you're angry at your kids because maybe you didn't 
receive enough love from your father and recognizing that and working through your feelings about your father will help you better deal with your kids. And then you decided that was sometimes worked, sometimes didn't, but it wasn't that great a technique. What What's your first, what's your thoughts on that? And a lot of therapy is like, oh, you were treated this way when you were 12. So that's why this is happening. Right. I feel, and and Phil Stutz, my co-author, very much agrees with this, and I think you know really introduced me to this notion that traditional therapy works on a sort of causal continuum, if you know if you want to use that word, um, meaning that the underlying assumption of traditional therapy is that if you can uncover the causes of your problems, that will solve your problems. And this always made me wonder because I don't know how figuring out how I got this way changes how I am. I still am that way right, well, right I, now. I guess you could say it's a, it could be a, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. It could be a distancing technique. So for instance, if I feel a certain way about, let's say when I was 14, you know, every single a girl I asked out rejected me, it could make me afraid to ask a girl out when I'm 50. Absolutely. <laughs> or a woman out when I'm, when I'm 50. Absolutely. And so just recognize, like labeling. And I'm not against understanding how you got the way you are now, but it, it feels to me like change happens in the present. It, in other words, no matter how well you understand how you got the way you are now, you have to do something different now. Mm. If I'm afraid to talk to girls, I can understand why I'm afraid to talk to girls and how that you know, was caused by my past or whatever. But I still need a force, courage, that's gonna get me to go up to a girl and talk to them. And what the tools are for is to bring up that force that you've never had access to. Before. Right, so, so in this particular case, I'm just hypothetically saying, you, maybe it's a help, maybe it's a not to understand where your current fears come from, but whether you understand it or not, using, let's say, the, the tool from uh, Coming Alive called the, the mother tool might help you uh, get through that fear regardless of whether you know the causes or not. Exactly, or the reversal of desire from the first book. Describe that one again, I don't remember It's the tool where you take the fear that you're feeling and you push it out in front of you and give it the form of a dark cloud, and then you move through the dark cloud with these screaming declarations. Bring it on, I love fear, and fear sets me free. And you get this feeling of, you know, have you ever... Um, have you ever been really afraid to do something and, and something inside of you rises up and you just say, fuck it, I'm going to do it? That's the feeling that the reversal of desire creates inside of you. It's that feeling of, you know what? I'm fucking sick of being scared. I'm sick of being a coward. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through it, you know, kind of thing. And what you discover with the reversal of desire is that fear is not absolute. It's relative to the direction that you're moving in. If you move toward fear over and over again in your life, you're less afraid. Well, I like the analogy you use, um, which I which I relate to very much in in um, in, in the most recent book. Uh, I always have to I have a bad memory coming okay. alive, even though I just read it. <laughs> um, I like the analogy you use uh, where. Uh, imagine a mugger with his gun at your head, and he says, "Give me all your money." And 
you of course give the mugger all your money. He's got a gun. And then often in life, we're, that's not our choice to give to give the money. It's the mugger's choice. But but often in life, we have these emotional guns to our head. Like for instance, your mom calling you that first time, that's a gun to your head. You better call me or else I'm going to be even angrier. And so you feel like, oh my gosh, I should call my mom. And uh, uh, I think a lot of this is about so many times like we go to a coffee we go to we go to a dinner we we placate our boss in a certain way um and it's not our choices and people don't realize that adds up yes that could be like if you add it up all together could you, you could be you lost 10 to 20 years of your life doing yes. choices for other people yes and and it 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 reinforces something else which is when you take action on a fear or on some other neurotic emotion you actually reinforce that fear. You're in a certain way, you're saying the fear is valid because I'm acting according to it. And the, mm, the converse really is, is also true. When you take action in spite of a fear, the fear gets less because you didn't die. <laughs> you know? And in fact, usually nothing bad happens. The, I, I told you I'm afraid of public speaking when every single time I've spoken publicly, afterwards, I feel elated. And I'm much more willing to do it the next time because nothing terrible happened, you know. Kind of. Well, what? It, well, actually, I want to continue at first with the, the the history aspect of you know how how you kind of the intellectual genesis of where you came up with these techniques. Um, then you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, which in general I like. Which is okay. You could sit there all you want talking about your mom and your dad and what happened when you were five years old. But at the end of the day, you have a problem and this is the problem. And the therapist says, well, why don't you say this to your boss instead of that? And I kind of like the technique. And I'll tell you why I like it. Because it's, it's, I feel then you're using the therapist as a statistician. Yes. So, so I had this situation. Uh, I, I'm having this situation with, let's say, my boss or wife or whatever. And the therapist has seen this 10,000 times. So statistically, what's worked and what hasn't, and he or she is able to say, well, why don't you say this? Because it's almost like you're using the therapy, you're throwing a situation, they pattern match into their database of tens of thousands of situations because they have thousands of clients over the years, and they're able to tell you what is probably the best answer. So I kind of I like cognitive behavioral therapy for that. I do too, actually, and it's before I, I met Phil, that was basically what I, what I practiced, and what I loved about it was irrespective of your history and irrespective of insight into your history, they would give you very specific tools, things that you could do in the present. You know, like, like the idea of labeling is a cognitive behavioral tool, essentially. It's just saying, I know there's a part of me that's really scared, but I don't have to be that part of me. I can exist separate from it. That's essentially a cognitive behavioral tool. The, the other, another cognitive behavioral tool is just simply facing your fears, you know, t taking contrary action as a cog cognitive behavioral tool. When I, I know that I have an irrational fear of public speaking, so I want to do as much public speaking as I possibly can, and it will, in fact, dissolve my fears. The only thing that I felt was really missing from cognitive behavioral therapy was the idea of inner forces. So my story about that was that I, I grew up um, the youngest of a very hyper, hyper intellectual family. I mean, they were so bright. They still are. 
my sister is the brightest person I know. And I was always trying to catch up to, to you know, and I always felt stupid. I, even after I went to Harvard College and law school. You had to and, throw that in. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I used to say, I, I don't hold it against me, but. No, you, you passed five minutes, so that's, that's success. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but um, my point is, no matter how much I achieved, I always felt really stupid and kind of worthless inside. And labeling that never made it go away. What made it go away was these tools where I could actually tap into forces inside of me that enabled me to do things that I'd never done before. And seeing myself do those things made me feel really strong inside, made me feel like I am who I am. Yeah, they were extraordinarily bright and accomplished, but I am too, and I don't even really need to compare myself to them anymore. I'm my own person. I know I may not be describing it right, but it's it's rather than simply labeling this part of me, it's going beyond that and tapping into potential that I didn't know I had. So, so a lot of these tools, though, these visualization tools, they, they remind me they're kind of a, um, it's almost like you're saying, okay, I'm going to take uh, versions of compassion-oriented meditation, and I'm going to westernize them. I'm going to call them a psychological tool, and I'm going to f- formulate them in different ways. So there's, you know, you have you have tools the the black sun, the vortex, the mother, the tower, and but a lot of it reminds me of just very much thinking about all the people around you in a very compassionate way, whether they are whether they've treated you that way or not, just kind of rewiring your brain to view them compassionately instead of falling in the patterns of stress and anger and hatred and whatever. And could you argue that that style of meditation could have helped you, for instance, on public speaking? I'm going to love the audience, and then I know when I go up there, I don't need to be as afraid. They're, I'm loving them and trying to help them, and I don't need to be afraid. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, mostly because... In loving the audience, I'm tapping into something inside of me, a a sort of a givingness in a sense, that defines me as having value. Part of the, the, um, in fact, most of people's fear of public speaking is the feeling that you are defined by the audience, Mm. that it's really they who are going to put the thumbs up or the thumbs down, you know, like the Roman emperor, you know, condemning the the gladiator. And when you can feel like you have something to give and the whole point of your being there is to give them something, then it doesn't really matter whether they don't like you or don't like you. All you have to do is give the best that you have to give. And that sounds conceptual, but when you can really feel that inside of you, and I feel that when I'm public, when I'm speaking publicly, like, like there's like there's wisdom or juice or compassion or love inside of me that I'm giving to other people, that really shifts the reality. It's kind of like they're either going to receive it or not or do whatever they want with it, but I'm here to give it, you know, kind of thing. I think the moment a human being can feel like they have something to give, something inside of them, and they're going to give it out regardless of the response, they're automatically in a good place. I mean, that's why, I mean, I... I'm not an addict or an alcoholic, but I study 12-step groups because I think that they have a lot of wisdom in them. And they really encourage their members to be of service to one another 
Because what they find is that the more they give, the less they crave. They've reoriented themselves to the outside world so that they're giving more and craving less. And craving can be about a drug or alcohol, but it can also be about validation or you know, being liked or, or anything else or social media hits or you know, whatever. It's putting yourself in a more powerful position when you say, I'm defined by what I give, not by what I get back. So, so uh, this makes me wonder, like, where we're all primates, and primates for six million years live in tribes, and the tribes are ranked from the alpha person to the omega person. And in, in tribes for millions of years outside of humans, uh, you, every, you know, tribes are only about 30 entities, you know, 30 apes or chimpanzees or whatever. Everybody knows their place in the hierarchy. You know exactly who is above you and who is below you in the hierarchy. And it's, and it's okay. You kind of deal with your, your place. And I find in this right now, we have this world where there's many hierarchies. Like you might have an Amazon ranking or your number of Twitter followers or whether your wife and kids love you. Like there's lots of different ways we look to, for, for validation. And like I've had points where I've been obsessed, meaning I'll be happy if, let's say I write an article, I'll be happy if a lot of people read it and I'll get really, not only sad, but just disgusted with myself if not a lot of people read it or not a lot of people share it. And I, I found the best way for me was to kind of diversify hierarchies. So if one hierarchy wasn't working, I'd go into uh, another one. I'd, I'd, I'd find, okay, well, this isn't working today for me, but maybe this other one is working for me today. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where, would it, where does that fit in, in terms of like, you know, conquering this need for validation? Because we do need validation where we can't help six million years of evolution. Yeah, I mean, God, I have so many different responses to that. Um, in order to be fully yourself, I think that you have to put the hierarchy aside, even though it's there, even though it's real. In other but, words, but it's in, almost impossible. Like our brains are wired for hierarchy. It 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 is and it isn't. I mean, you mentioned the shadow earlier, um, and I I find that the shadow is a very very effective. Just to back up for a moment, what the shadow is, is a different being living inside of you. I know that sounds weird and strange, but it consists of whatever it is you're most embarrassed of, self-conscious about, ashamed of, and also whatever you're guilty about, you know, things that you've done, things that you've wished you could have done, you know, wishing evil on other people, you know, whatever it is. It's a dark part of yourself. Now, obviously, it doesn't have a separate physical body. It's not like a head sticking out of your neck, but it does have a separate identity. It's sort of the opposite of, of you, you know, the, the, the you that you want to present publicly. Now, if you maintain the stance that most people maintain toward their shadow, which is, I'm ashamed of it, I feel guilty about it, I'm going to hide it as much as I possibly can from everyone else, then you are reinforcing the hierarchy in essence because what you're saying is, God forbid they see my shadow. Mm. And really, whenever you present yourself, whether it's public speaking or just a dinner party or something, it really becomes about more about hiding your shadow than about giving what you have to give to others. A great way to dissolve the hierarchy 
is to be so bonded with your shadow, and the book goes on and on about how to do that, be so bonded with your shadow that the two of you cannot be pitted against one another by any judgment that you receive from the outside world. It's, it's almost like a way of negating the hierarchy because we're in this together, so solid and so with each other that like me or hate me, I don't really care. I think that's because you're kind of separating, even though it's a part of you, all these fears and, and worries and need for validation, you're separating that out in your mind, you're visualizing this separate person. Yeah. Like when I did it that one time before public speaking, I pictured kind of this sniveling teenage version of myself that was always really scared and whatever. And you you, you separate that out. So that's the person that needs the validating and I'm good to go. Exactly. And actually that talk, I then almost, I, like I gave a great talk and I felt super confident walking up to the stage. Like it really worked. And I'll say the difference between that and let's say just, a compassion meditation is that it's this very specific visualization dealing with that specific problem. So, yes. it, so there is there is gradation between let's call it uh, no visualization and you know compassion meditation. Like these, I'll call them Westernized type me meditations, are for specific problems that we encounter often in in daily lives. Exactly. It's it's. I have nothing against meditation, and I do meditate. You know, well, well these tools to are often meditation. They're meditative. Yeah, exactly. But but the tools are designed to be used in a specific situation for a specific problem. You know, kind of thing. The other thing I wanted to mention, um, apropos what what you just said, what was it? Um, oh. I'll tell you something else, which is that the shadow, once it is integrated and bonded with, rather than be, being a source of shame, becomes a resource. So I cannot count the number of times in therapy sessions. This is a dirty little secret that most therapists won't tell you, which is over and over again in a therapy session, you know, you'll be nodding thoughtfully and thinking inside, I don't know what the fuck to say. I have this problem too. I don't know, what am I going to say to this guy? When that happens to me, and it really happens often, even though I'm a good therapist, I turn to my shadow and say, what do I do? What do I say here? And I can't tell you how many times he has started talking through me. What's an example? I'll give you a strange example. Um, this was a long time ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I was treating this very kind of, I don't mean this in a critical way, he just was kind of dull. He was like an accountant type and he was sort of droning on and on about kind of superficial problems. I was almost like wondering, why are you in therapy? You know, kind of thing. These are these are like sort of mundane things that you could talk to your friends about or, or something. And so I turned to my shadow and I said, "What what's going on here? Like what, I'm getting bored. And he said, look at his eyes. And so I, I just focused on his eyes and I saw in my mind's eye a tear running down his cheek. It was in my mind's eye. It wasn't a hallucination, but, but I stopped him and I said, you know, I'm listening to what you're saying, but the feeling I'm getting inside is that you are really sad, just really sad inside. And I took a beat and burst into tears. And that's when the therapy started. It was like he was just 
droning on and on as a way of just hiding from himself, I think more than me, just how desperate and unhappy he was. So that would be an example of how the shadow has, has become a resource. The other thing is I, I'm, I tend to be kind of like a nice person. And so when I feel like a session isn't really like truthful and deep, I'll turn to the shadow and he'll say, be honest. This person is really lame in this area. You know, like just tell them they're fucked up you know, kind of thing. Be more honest. And like, like what's the situation there? Let's just say, a, I'm going to disguise this a little bit, but a very, very accomplished actress, Academy Award winner, unbelievable ability to get into shockingly different characters, you know, like truly a, a, a craftsman when it comes to acting and, and, um, and, and dramatic, um, you know, personification. And yet in her relationship, she's a fucking disaster, you know, doesn't know how to set limits, doesn't know how to say no, lets herself be abused, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Can you introduce me to Halle Berry? (laughs) (laughs) Could be any number of, and you know, you need to tell them that you need to tell them the truth. You need to tell them, look, you're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're uh, you. You are incredibly talented. I I would watch you on in any movie or any TV show you've ever been on. But let's just face facts. You're a fucking moron when it comes to relationships. And I'm going to teach you how to set limits so that you can have a, a decent relationship with a guy. You know, kind of thing. What do you, Where do you think she would sabotage herself? Um. Well, first of all. I mean, it starts at at the beginning dating guys who have horrible reputations, you know, and at least in Hollywood, there's usually some truth to the reputations. It's not just, you know, bullshit. It's like, yeah, if that much has come out, you, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, you know? So it's, it's also like, you don't look, let me put it this way. There are certain fundamental parameters that you try to teach people about relationships. I was about to say women, but it's true for men also. Number one, you want someone who can talk honestly about their drawbacks, about their problems, but not only be honest about them, tell you how they're working on them mm. specifically. Like if somebody can't do that or won't do that, I'm not saying on the first date necessarily, but you know, at least once you feel like there's something substantial there, that's not a good sign. It's just not a good sign. What if they think they're working on it, um, but, then you but you have, feel they're not? That's the second parameter, which is watch, monitor, see in those situations where you feel like they should be doing something different, are they actually trying to do something different? Or they at least coming to you afterwards and saying, you know, that was one of those leverage points where I should have done something different and I didn't. And I just want you to be aware I'm working on this, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. Another is empathy. It's amazing to me how few people consider empathy a fundamental requirement for the person they're in a relationship with. If you're speaking to someone about a difficulty that you have or about some pain that you have, and they're like, oh, let's see, I'm not interested, <laughs> you know, whatever. And that's a pattern. It's not just like a one-time thing. 
that's a very bad sign. Like, why would you want to spend your life with someone like that? You know, kind of thing. So there are fundamental parameters that, for whatever reason, these people didn't pick up. You know, maybe they maybe they didn't see it in their parents' marriage, or or whatever. And usually, it's because they don't actually feel entitled to those things. You know, entitlement gets a bad rap in Hollywood because people are so over entitled. But in relationships. Women, especially in Hollywood, don't feel entitled. They don't feel entitled to attention. They don't feel feel entitled to empathy. They don't feel entitled to certain basic things like I don't get hit, I don't get you know sexually harassed, I don't get abused. You know, it's shocking to me, and not just in Hollywood, but of all of the women that I've treated throughout my career, I would say that eighty percent of them have been sexually harassed, sexually abused, or molested. By members of their family, and how do they? How does someone like that? That's such a traumatic thing. How do they really get over it? Because you know uh, they're going to be in intimate relationships with men. So there's two two things that can go wrong. They 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 end up, or and this applies in both directions really. But they could end up with somebody who's like the person who treated them poorly because that's what they're used to. Uh, and they're trying to get validation from the prior person, so they go out with someone similar. Or if they are with someone who's a decent person, they can't get over the trauma enough to really have a regular relationship with them. I don't know what regular means there, but you know, roughly. Yeah, it's a great question, and I mean that the answer is probably hours long. But to summarize it quickly, number one, make sure that you're not continuing the pattern because every single time you forge a relationship with another abuser, you're reinforcing that trauma. You know, it's, you're letting it happen again. Right, so that now you're going to the second situation where you, you succeeded in finding someone who's a dis- decent person, you're in a relationship with them, but still all these past traumas trigger yes. so many different things. And that, I mean, I hate to be one note about this, but that has to do with the shadow. So the shadow of a traumatized person feels betrayed not just by the traumatizer, but by you, because you let it happen. So especially if you were an adult when it happened, you didn't set proper limits. And so the shadow needs to be reassured, number one, that I will not let that happen again. Number two, I will be sensitive to your fears and move forward at a pace that you're comfortable with. And if the guy doesn't like it, fuck him tough. I'm damaged. And my job is to protect you from further damage. So I'm not, and again, this goes back to the public speaking thing. I'm not going to care more about the other person's sexual gratification or whatever it is than I care about you. You're a part of me. You're my first loyalty. You're my primary charge, you know, in a sense. And then number three as things begin to develop, and I've, I've seen this over and over again, you're going to find reasons to sabotage this. And there are going to be all kinds of reasons depending on who you are. You know, they may be, it's interesting that women who have been abused often become hypercritical of men who don't abuse them. You know, ugh, I don't like the way his breath smells, or ugh, I don't like the way he chews, or whatever. And it's all just a way of getting out of real intimacy, mm. you know, because that's what real intimacy is. You're not only going to 
experience your own shadow, you're going to experience the other person's shadow. Wow, you know, what a trip that is. Given that you're saying 80% of the women or up to 80% of the women you've treated of experiences, and this is just a specific situation, there's men have experienced their things, women have experienced their things, how would you advise the men who are going out with one of these 80%? Because then most men are going out with or married to a woman who has had some kind of trauma and might not understand the pacing or might understand the forms of sabotage or whatever. So I see what you're saying, like, you know, screw them if they're not fine with your pacing, but men can be confused too. Yeah, and and look, men have to kind of answer a threshold question, which is, am I up for this? Mm. Because it's it's work to Mm. be, you know. I mean, look, I haven't been abused and my wife hasn't been abused and it's work anyway. (laughs) I mean, relationships are hard. Relationships to me are the hardest thing anybody will ever do in their role. Why is that? Like you would think two people meet, oh, I love you, I love you. Like you would, they would, okay, live happily ever after. But that doesn't really happen. No. In fact, actually, it gets really bad after it that. It gets really bad after that. Yeah. And not bad in a sense that, oh, there's betrayal and beating and all that, but just like the emotional maze that you go through when you're trying to entangle your life with somebody is yeah. very difficult. Because, I, I mean, I think that there is no situation in life where you are as nakedly vulnerable to another human being as a relationship. Mm. It's scary to start a business. Don't get me wrong. It's scary to go to war, you know, or be a soldier, you know, whatever. There are certainly really legitimately frightening experiences. But to live with someone, wake up next to them, go to sleep with them every single day, to have children with them, that is that is more revealing than anything else you will ever do in your life. And so to sustain, so you're going to see parts of the other person that you really didn't want to see. And they're going to see parts of you that you didn't really want anyone to see. And that's very, very difficult. Most people go into relationships thinking, just like what you said, it's going to be love. This is going to be great, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they forget that that vulnerability is going to is going to result in you feeling injured from time to time the other mm. person is going to feel injured you're going to feel like well i didn't injure you intentionally so get over it you know kind of thing then they're going to feel even more injured because you're telling them to get over it you know and that's that's why you know so much of my work is about relationships whether they're business or you know more often personal is because it's really difficult to sustain love you know, through that, in a sense, it's it's it goes back to the earlier discussion we had about love, compassion, and outflow. Relationships are the arena where that is absolutely the most important thing. Because if you can't be in an outflow, loving, compassionate, trying to understand the other person, even when every fiber of your being says "fuck this," you know, I hate this, I don't want to do this, or I'm hurt, or he's wrong, or she's wrong, or whatever. That that's what makes relationships work. So so in coming alive, you know, you give four tools for dealing with various different problems. Which and given how the importance of relationships, which tool would you recommend in general? Like, oh, I seem to be miscommunicating with my loved one. 
Um, and you know, at that point, by by the time someone's saying that, they're probably not that rational. They're probably either angry or scared, or like you said, feeling injured or feeling sad or feeling lonely. Um, so first, they've got a label that this is how they feel, and that they need some help instead of kind of ruminating over the actions of the other person over and over again. So what tool would you recommend from Coming Alive? It's a great question. Unequivocally, the mother tool would be the one that I would recommend. I was going to say that as well. If you had, did not say that, I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Because, do you, I mean, do you know why, why you were going to say that? Do yes, know? because I've used it, um, which is if I'm seeing somebody and and there's some problem and I find myself ruminating, well, why did this person say this or that person? If I, I do it slightly different than you recommend in the book, but it works out to be the same thing. I visualize that I'm their mother mm. and then I have a whole, then suddenly the lens of which I'm looking at them is a whole different type of care and, you know, kindness than if I was, you know, their partner, yes. their, their romantic partner. Yes. I think that's really insightful. If you want to say it another way, it's uh, what I feel is that it's best to think of all relationships as actually having three members. So instead of being a dyad, it's actually a triad, a triangle. And the member at the top is the mother. Now the mother, just for people who haven't read the book, doesn't mean your biological mother or your parent or any human being. It really is what Jung called an archetype, which is the quintessence of mother energy, which you know could simply be said as unconditional love, unconditional safety, and confidence in your potential, regardless of what you think of yourself. Now think of it, if you can tap into some energy that loves you, wants to keep you strong and safe and believes in you no matter what's happening in the world, then you can deal with injuries much more easily. You can deal with misunderstandings more easily. If you can really feel that, you know, and that's what the tool is for, but if you can really feel that every moment of every day, then when my wife's in a bad mood or when she's accusing me of something I don't think I did or when I'm angry at her or whatever, I can calm down at least and communicate it in a simpler way. If you want to see it the other way around, because we live in a time in human history where we are ultimately materialists, meaning that we think of the material outside world as the hegemonous world, like that's what, where everything counts and everything matters, we look to each other for that kind of love and there's no way we can give it to each other. We're all just imperfect human beings. If I look to my wife for the kind of love that I should be looking to the archetypal mother for, forget it. There's just no way she's too busy, hassled, worry about her own shit. I'm just not going to get it. But if I can feel that as a real thing being received from someone else, then I can approach her. And weirdly enough, I relieve her of the need to love me that way. And when she's relieved, she loves me more. <laughs> yeah, well, I think also it becomes, it makes you less outcome-oriented. Yes. So instead of uh, thinking in your head, I don't know what a problem might be, but like, you know, why didn't she want to go to the place I wanted to go to? She only wanted to go to the place she wanted to go to and she knew I would have, blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, you, could, you could think you're not as much 
oriented on the specific outcome that did or didn't happen or won't happen, but you're thinking of in terms of like, oh, this is, you know, if I, if you if you love someone like this archetypal uh, mother, it's it's about loving right now as opposed to like being very focused on an outcome. It's a great example. In my case, you know, I came out of this slightly crazy family, a control freak. I'm I mean, I'm already pretty obsessive. Like when I walk into a room in our house, I without even having to work at it, I automatically know what's out of place, you know, kind of thing. I no longer feel compelled to put it in, you know, back in place. But you could and and I I I married somebody who's not really She's not a mess, but she really cares that much. And I used to like really get down on her. It was terrible, you know, kind of. It's just not who she is. Once I started to feel the love of the mother, it just gave me this feeling of it's okay, like it's all right. Let her, let her be. It's you know, she doesn't need to to be as controlling as you. She doesn't have to be as obsessive as you are. You can just love her. And I became much more giving and we we got along much better, you know, kind of thing. So you're right. The mother relieves you of needing to control outcomes. And that's also true outside of relationships. You know, when a project that you're engaged in and that you've given your heart to doesn't succeed, it's the mother energy that picks you up and dusts you off and allows you to get you know, back on track again. You know, if you think about it, that's a really good example because that's exactly what a human mother does to a child when he's learning how to walk for the first time. You know, kids just fall down <laughs> over and over. And it's the mother that picks them. It's the mother energy, whether it's coming through the father or the mother, that says, it's okay, I'm here, try it again, you'll do it again. Well, and it, it's, it's interesting because when you're not outcome-oriented, the worst-case scenario can happen. Like... In a relationship, you can end up breaking up. Uh, it might not work out, but that's okay. We're not outcome oriented. A job might not work out. The baby might fall over and over again while it's trying to walk. So you have to be ready for that. Though any outcome, really, um, even even the worst case outcome, whether that's a possibility or not. Um, but I think again, kind of doing that that tool in the book helps you. Able, also able to deal with those worst case scenario outcomes, which you couldn't have avoided anyway. Yes. But you know, if some if two people are meant to break up, no matter how much loving kindness you apply, then they're going to break up. Yes. Um, they're certainly not going to stay together if you get angry, as opposed to you know being loving. Totally. Uh, so, can I bring up another area where sure. it's very useful? Is parenting, because. Parents, I think now are under more pressure than they've ever been under to produce perfect kids. And it's horrible. It's really horrible. And for me, at least, what enabled me, I think, not to give in to that trend was the archetypal mother. In essence, the archetypal mother allowed me to be an imperfect parent because I knew I was, and there was no way I was going to be perfect. And to just simply love them for who they were, regardless of how they turned out. You know, parenting is one of those situations where the outcome, quote unquote, feels like it's so high stakes that it's almost impossible not to get invested in it. But you can't, because success means they're no longer doing it for you. They are full individuals in and of themselves. So the ultimate goal is to let go, 
It's not to it's not to take credit or to hold on, you know, to the thing. And it's only if you're getting getting the love and the and the sense of who you are from someplace else that you can actually allow that to happen. It's funny because I I think it's very funny how every parent always finds something in their child that that the child is the best at. Like, oh, my son just won his high school's archery competition or, you know, he's straight A honor roll student and I'm so proud. So, you know, we're we're filming this podcast in a stand-up comedy club. I often do stand-up comedy downstairs and I have a joke that works most of the time, which is that uh, it starts off basically saying, my kids are at best on a scale of zero to 10, a three or a four. (laughs) Whether it's looks or intelligent, (laughs) intelligence or charm or creativity, four tops. And people like Campbell, what did he say? Like, exactly. And then they start laughing after the first guess, and then I go off from there. But That's it works. That's hilarious. You know, my daughter actually taught me my philosophy of parenting. She's a stand-up comic in oh, LA. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, in LA. And she wrote me this Father's Day card about five years ago that started, Dear Dad, Happy Father's Day, I love you. Thank you for fucking me up enough to be a stand-up comic, but not enough to be a stripper. <laughs> Which to me is my whole that philosophy. Is, that is of, funny. It's like you're gonna fuck up your kids. Just try not to go too far, you know, kind of thing. That, that's great. I, I, like I have that. told that to so many parents, and it's such a relief for them to hear because it's kind of like, yeah, you know, you're just not you're not gonna be able to not pass on some of the shit that you have. You just don't want to go too far, you know, kind of thing. So so you know, a lot of the things that I like, like you start off the book talking about, you know, how we can best bring to life the living force that's inside of us. And and I, from a marketing point of view, I love it because it makes me think of the force in Star Wars. And it makes me think of like, oh, if I apply these tools, there's like infinite power at my disposal. And um, uh, what would you say, you know, are the techniques or what's the technique that, you like the best of of the four that that really does let you feel the force. So that's again a naive question, but uh, no, 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 no. It's a great. I do question. like the, mar- the the way the book started off, focusing so much on like we have this like active living force inside of us. Yeah, and I love Star Wars. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the the truthful answer is there's there are other tools that I use to feel that force even more than the four that that are in the book. But the Black Sun, which is in the book, is probably the tool that I use the most. It's a tool that's designed, excuse me, to um, restrain your impulses, whether you have, and we all have impulses, whether whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or- Anger. Anger, exactly. Your impulses can be reactive. You know, in LA, it's like flipping people off in traffic. Um, and whatever impulses you have- are a kind of a discharge of the life force. Mm. They leave you needing more, essentially. In other words, the more you give in to impulses, the more you want to give in to them, in a sense. Impulses are, it's almost, and it's its not for nothing that they used to be seen as the tool of the devil because they're this funny thing where the more you gratify an impulse, the stronger the impulse is the next time. It's not like you actually are satisfied you know, like I love sugar cookies. I can't just have one and then be satisfied. I want one tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Whereas the more you restrain your impulses, the more the impulse energy sort of transmutes itself inside of you 
and you become very, very powerful. The force becomes with you, to use you know, the Star Wars terminology, instead of against you. And that's called dynamic inversion in the book. It's just literally over and over again, if you can restrain the impulse, and the Black Sun tool does, is designed to help you restrain it at the moment you're experiencing it, it builds up and builds up and builds up inside of you so that you have more to give, more energy, more life force, and more ambition, frankly. It's one of the reasons, again, I mentioned 12-step groups. If you study people in their first year of sobriety, they almost always experience a, like a renaissance. You know, their relationships get better. They finally start doing all of the projects that they were interested, you know, in doing. I treated a, a guy who was a longtime addict, and the first year of sobriety, he won an, an Oscar-winning screenplay. It was just bang. He was just, you know, there. And it's and it's proof that this transmutation can can occur, you know, inside of you. So whenever I get an impulse, I mean, mine are, tend to be mild, you know. There's like I'm I'm a I'm like a Jewish guy. I don't really indulge that much. But when I get the impulse and I can transmute it, it's a tremendous feeling. You know, so maybe describe that the black sun technique. Yeah, sure. So the black sun is based on the idea that you wouldn't feel impelled to get something outside of you, again, whether it's a, a drink or a cookie or another donut or whatever, you wouldn't feel impelled to get it if you weren't missing something inside, right? It would be more take it or leave it. It'd right. be more like a choice. And most people try to control that urge through sheer willpower. And some can succeed, which is, which is fine. The problem is whether you succeed or fail, you've still left this empty hole inside of you, which is why in 12-step groups, they, they call people who do this stuff by sheer willpower dry drunks. And they tend to be really angry people because they live in a state of constant deprivation. I want a drink, I want a drink, I want a drink, but I'm not going to let myself have it, you know, kind of thing. And they're pissed off at life because they can't gratify themselves. So what would happen if instead of doing it by sheer willpower, you actually stopped thinking about the thing that you want altogether and in fact let go of the entire outside world as a source that's ever really going to gratify you and instead just stare at the empty hole inside of you. Now that sounds strange, but if you can, what, and what the tool teaches you to do is simply to look inside stare at this abyss, this empty place inside of you, and then gradually visualize a dark sun, just exactly like the sun looks like at the moment of a total solar eclipse, rising inside of you. And the black sun, it symbolizes an infinite resource that's inside of your unconscious that you've always buried by going to the outside world for gratification. And as it rises inside of you, it just fills you with warmth and strength and givingness. It fills you up inside. And then at the very end of the tool, you look back to the outside world, but instead of wanting to extract something from it, you give this black sun energy to it. And that, again, codifies that principle that I mentioned earlier, which is the solution to our endless craving to get more from the outside world is actually to give more 
to the world. And it works. It's, it's really remarkably effective. It sounds more complicated than it is. If you read the book, you'll see it's like basically four steps. But if you do it over and over and over again, when you have the impulse to rage or you have the impulse to react to somebody, the impulse to get something that you know, you know just isn't good for you, it becomes almost like second nature. And it's an enormous relief because it's like, not only do I not actually need that thing, suddenly I feel like I'm in a state where I can give more, you know, like I have more to give to others, which goes back to what you said in the beginning, which is basically the more love and compassion you can give out to the world, the stronger you are. In a weird way, it's, it's an unselfish, it appears unselfish, but in a, in a healthy way, it's actually the most selfish thing you can do inside because it shifts your whole state of mind. Well, well, I mean, and, and this gets back to the, the mugger analogy, you know, the mugger has the gun to your head, so you have to give your money. That's not your choice. But all day long, you know, people emotionally have guns to our heads and we're constantly doing things that's not our choice, but we're trying to satisfy their choices so they're not upset at us. And just think how much of your life you could grab back. It, it seems selfish to only to say, oh no, I'm only going to do it if it's my choice. Like on the one hand, that does seem selfish. I mean, I wrote a, a book called Choose Yourself and the initial... Um, criticism I got was, oh, that seems very selfish all the time. But actually, if you're not choosing yourself, then when do you get to live the life you want? Yes. And that should be the best for the world. Yes, exactly. Which goes back to the discussion about, about traditional therapy. I do find traditional therapy sometimes can become self-indulgent when all it consists of is talking about how my parents damaged me, you know, kind of thing. But it's the opposite of self-indulgent to work on yourself in an effective way and become more productive, more loving, more giving in the world. That's, that's wonderful. That's the opposite of self-indulgence. So what are, uh, what, what's a technique not in the book that you find yourself often using? I, for some reason, um, really find cosmic rage, one of the most effective tools for me personally. Now, this also goes back to something earlier that we were talking about, um, that had to do with somebody criticizing you or somebody oppressing you in some way. I, I learned very early to try to think of, let, let me start over. Everybody has someone in their life, whether it's their mother, in my case, their spouse, a friend, whatever, who's just difficult. <laughs> They're just difficult, okay? And I believe that that person is in your life, in a sense, to get you to work on yourself and discover potential that you never had before. Because you're never really going to be able to make the relationship work. It's one of those sort of impossible you know, things. And the first step to that is don't think of it as the person. Think of it as I'm meeting a force that exists in the outside world that hates me, is critical of me, is just unequivocally difficult. And, my, and I'm going to meet it in other people, by the way, from time to time. My job is to learn to fend off that force, not to make the relationship work with this person. Is that clear? Yeah. So I'm lifting it up a little bit above the level of the personal to a more archetypal level. Everyone has to deal with someone difficult, somebody who's bad or evil you know, in their lives. And I would rather teach them how to deal with the force of evil because then they can apply it to anyone who's difficult. 
even a three-year-old can be evil, you know, in their life. And if they can deal with the force rather than trying to get along with the person, then they can evolve and become much more powerful and much more confident, frankly, in life. So what do you, what do you, what's the exact mental process like when you're so, dealing with? So let's say I'm, my mother's dead, but, but let's say she was alive and she calls me and she starts ranting and raving at me. What I immediately do is I see my mother, but I see her surrounded by a dark, malicious force that is trying to undermine my confidence in myself. It's trying to get me to be anxious and scared mm. and insecure and mm. feel attacked. And, you know, this could work just as well with a, with a mean boss or, you know, something like that. And I, I make her smaller and smaller and smaller, so she disappears. So all of a sudden, I'm just facing this dark, malicious force. And I remind myself, this force has attacked me my entire life, and it has turned me against myself. And what I need is a counterforce with which to push the dark force back. And that counterforce is rage. If you think of rage, it is, number one, our normal human reaction to unfairness. But here, I guess you're, you're aiming the rage not at your mother. Not at all. But at this at the force. dark cloud that's... Exactly. And the ra all the rage does is it doesn't get rid of the force, but it pushes it back beyond a perimeter so that there's space in front of me. Now, space is a very important concept for a human being. When, when we talk about space, we're not talking about physical space. We're talking about the psychic space where you can be confident, where you can be yourself regardless of what's going on in the outside world. That's what space really is. When you can push evil back beyond that perimeter and feel this space opening up in front of you, you can feel like, I am who I am. I'm strong. I don't really give a flying fuck about the way you're treating me or what you think of me or anything else. And that, to me, is a very powerful tool. Mm. The reason it's rage, and you know, people often have a problem with rage because what they've experienced is rage directed at another human being. And I'm, I just want to make it clear, I'm never saying rage against another human being. But rage is the best force to use against a force that's trying to undermine your confidence, that's trying to make you, turn you against yourself or make you feel insecure. Because it's A, your natural human reaction, and B, it's a force that tends to repel things. You know, love attracts. It brings things closer to you. Rage pushes things away from you. Mm -hmm. I learned this actually from stand-up comics who I treated who told me that before they got on stage, they would feel really, really nervous and they would really want the audience to like them. And what they would do is stand behind the closed curtain before it opened up and they would say, fuck you to the audience as loud as they could as a way of saying, I don't give a shit. I'm just going to give you what I give. That's it, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it liberated them. And I realized, holy shit, that's great. That's a tool. That's interesting. That's sort of the opposite of let's say, going up for public speaking and loving the audience. Right. So, But they right. both kind of have the same... And they both work because you're activating forces inside of you. And was, that's the whole thing is, it doesn't matter which... It's, it's like whatever works is, is my motto of therapy. But, but what's key is that you feel something coming up inside of you to counteract our normal human tendency, which is to derive our worth and value from the outside 
whether it's love and you're pouring love out to them or whether it's rage and it's like, fuck you, I don't give a shit what you think of me. Either way, you're defining yourself as a whole separate human being who's got something to say. Well, uh, I don't know if you realize this, but this entire podcast has been a therapy session for me. <laughs> how, how much money do I owe you? Are you Nothing. 600 bucks an hour? <laughs> if, you were, if you work in New York City, you're 600 bucks an hour. Right. I could tell you from experience. <laughs> but uh, uh, thank you so much for coming in. I feel like we've been trying to have a podcast for, for years because I loved the tools back in the day. Right. And then this book, Coming Alive, I got it as soon as it came out and it's just great. I've, I've read it twice over now when it, when it first came out and then uh, uh, more recently. Um, so Coming Alive by Barry Michaels and Phil Stutz uh, and the tools also by the same authors. I, I really encourage people to read both of them because they kind of work hand in hand. And they're just incredibly useful. Whether you, whether you use the tools or not, your discussion, and I do recommend using them. I've used them, but uh, the, the tools you describe. But uh, I just find the whole discussion of all these different types of common problems that people have, it's very interesting. It's very useful to, to, to learn and, and see and, and, and understand. So thanks once again, Barry, for, for coming in. And, and uh, I hope you write uh, the next book. Thanks. Oh, Cosmic so Rage, chapter number one. <laughs> yeah, I've got to write a book on that. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And I, I love your enthusiasm and I love listening to your podcast. Too. Oh, great. Thank you. You did a podcast with one comedian where you analyzed a joke that he tells. Oh, yeah, it Gary was Goldman. The greatest. I love that. Yeah, we took a five minute joke or a six minute joke that he had done on Conan. And I thought it was such a brilliant joke. And we spent basically 90 minutes breaking it down word by word. I've never seen that done. And it was so like edifying. It was so illuminating. It was amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that was, that's a, that was a good one. Yeah. So thanks once again, Barry. And uh, the book is Coming Alive, Four Tools to Defeat Your Inner Enemy, Ignite Creative Expression, and Unleash Your Soul's Potential. And of course, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast to the James Altucher Show. And I would really appreciate it if you did because that um, helps me, helps you, hopefully helps everyone. And thanks again for listening.